Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to Global Edge Talk. Today is May 5th, 2020, and today we have a very, very special guest, a good friend, Jeffrey Merrihue. Welcome, Jeffrey. Welcome, Alex. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Today is Cinco de Mayo, and we're a privilege to speak with Jeffrey. Let me just tell you quickly about Jeffrey and his tenure. He started as a corporate executive and spent a lot of time at Accenture, of all places, as the uh, managing partner and the later CEO of the one of the most important practice areas in marketing globally. He speaks multiple languages. He later on moved on to start his own venture called MoFilm, which aggregated a lot of global video talent and helped major, major corporations leverage that talent and leverage that content. He helped, by the way, quite a bit uh, to our mutual friend. He provided a lot of help to the CMO Club, Chief Marketing Officers Club. He was a very big part of that. Later on, and now, he is a connoisseur and entrepreneur and restaurateur of the famous heroic Italian, uh, one of the top Italian restaurants in Santa Monica, California, and is leading the charge on that in that segment in the entire Los Angeles County. Jeffrey, this is a uh, an amazing, amazing career, amazing path. We want to talk about this for sure. Well, thank you, Alex. Kind words. Uh, first, first word, uh, uh, first uh, question I want to ask of you is, how does one go from being a partner at Accenture and then, of course, becoming an entrepreneur, but still continuing to work with major, major brands and then becoming a foodie, becoming a restaurateur, becoming a, an Iron Chef judge in Canada and traveling the world. How does, how does all of this fit? Tell us. Well, we have to rewind uh, 55 years when I was 50, when I was five years old and um, two things were happening. Number one, my playroom was my family's kitchen, either my mom or my aunt. Uh, everybody in my family was a cook. So uh, I didn't have a playroom. I just banged around in the kitchen and helped mix things and stir the sauce. And for me, that was uh, those were my toys. And uh, secondly, um, well, I was always trying to make money. And I did things like um, going door to door selling seeds to win a bicycle. Um, then I collected comic books. I went to comic book conventions and I bought, sold, and traded them. And then I sold T-shirts at rock concerts. Um, with uh, dubious uh, legitimacy. Finally, um, I landed in a, a place called Babson College, which uh, was very fortunate because for those of you that don't know, Babson is the number one school for entrepreneurship in the world, um, and it's held that title for decades and decades. So while other schools go up and down the various rankings, uh, Babson has had an ironclad grip on the number one place for entrepreneurship. And uh, it was very well suited for my uh, early entrepreneurial uh, schemes and plans and uh, desires. So I came out of there and went to work uh, corporate, uh, first at Nabisco in uh, Barcelona, and then um, went through a number of countries like uh, Canada and Ecuador and uh, Venezuela, uh, Milan, Italy. And then I went on to work at Kellogg's and worked again in multiple international locations like Columbia, Manchester, England, and uh, so on and so forth. And I think that 
people from the outside looked at me and said, uh, well, they didn't know what I'd done entrepreneurially, you know, with comic books and t-shirts and seeds and stuff like that. All they knew was, oh, Jeffrey works for Nabisco, Jeffrey works for Kellogg's. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, uh, I went on to Accenture. Um, the reality is that because I was always in smaller countries relative to the headquarters, uh, the countries themselves were quite um, uh, sprightly. And this was before major globalization kicked in, which means like today, if you want to change Skippy peanut butter, you know, over in England, you better get permission. But back then, you could kind of do whatever you wanted. Um, and obviously, people were still looking, did it work or not? So that mattered. But you could do a lot of stuff internationally in marketing. So as I zipped around from Spain to Canada to Ecuador to Mexico to Italy, et cetera, uh, I would argue that I was uh, charged with being very entrepreneurial. Like my bosses were like, you got to make something happen. You got to do this. Uh, and I would actually sometimes, like I'd go back to headquarters at Battle Creek, Michigan for Kellogg's. And there you had hundreds of employees, managers, directors. And all I could sense at headquarters was, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And they'd even look at our plans overseas and they'd go, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do what I'm doing. You'd do all these lectures, but of course, then you just go back to Italy or whatever and you do whatever the hell you wanted. Now, I mean, I always listened and I took a lot of ideas from headquarters and, you know, I, was, I think I was a good student, but uh, certainly in the environments that I went through in so-called corporate, were actually massively entrepreneurial. I remember in Ecuador, in one year, we actually launched like 18 products, which was unheard of. And you could never have done that in a, in a big structured uh, company. So I think entrepreneurship, just to finish the intro, is uh, sometimes misunderstood to be, you're either in a big company or you're an entrepreneur in a small company. And I actually think that entrepreneurship is sort of a genetic thing. And you can be entrepreneurial at any level of company. You can be entrepreneurial in a small company, you can be entrepreneurial in a huge company. Some com big companies like 3M are famous for encouraging it. Other companies are famous for squashing it. <laughs> but uh, entrepreneurship is a state of mind, not a size of company. You know, I totally agree with you. And every time I met you, and I've, I've met you a few times um, all over the world, I, you were oozing entrepreneurship. You were always, you were dressed in a very kind of a casual entrepreneurial way. You really didn't care for suits or anything else like that. You always showed up in a very casual way as if you owned the place, so to speak. Um, and I was always amazed at how easy it was to talk to you, how approachable you were. Um, very likable by by a lot of people, by everyone. Um, and um, I, I agree with you that it has to be something with genetics because, um, you know, a lot of folks are struggling working for large organizations, working for large companies. You know, there's this amazing amount of fear to go back into small environment or to go into small environment or, you know, SMB environment. And and maybe realize their dream or realize their passion or something like this, right? Um, you, um, I always looked at you and always realized how much passion you have. <laughs> Let's you. talk a little bit about passion because I see it even in the, in the restaurant environment right now. I, and I've been to your place. The food was amazing. Uh, the way you present the food, the way you pay attention to a level of detail. I'm a foodie myself. I love to cook. 
And I was just amazed at the presentation, but also the taste, the selection of, uh, of products and ingredients, the selection of personnel. Um, I was truly amazed by this. And it, it's, you know, we'll get to the restaurant um, a little bit later, but I think what I want to talk about is the level of passion. And, and let's talk about how passionate you were almost at every step of the way. So, I mean, passion, I guess, is probably a lot like entrepreneurship in that it's kind of hard to learn. Like, again, I'd argue I was passionate about what I did when I was five. Like, I would stir my aunt's tomato sauce like nobody's business. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just ingrained. You know, my family came from Eastern Europe, um, as did yours. Uh, wonderful places, you know, like uh, Russia and Kiev and so forth. And, um, you know, we were uh, just a hardworking clan. And that just was, you know, I'd wake up early. I still do. I wake up at five and, and go to work without thinking about it. And I think a good example of the way I express that is when I ran companies, both within the big company, like um, Nabisco or Kellogg's or Accenture, or in a small company uh, like MoFilm, I always picked my people uh, based on kind of how hardworking and passionate uh, they were. And a good example of that is um, at MoFilm, for example, uh, we got rid of bonuses. So I'd grow up every company I ever worked in, got a bonus system. And kind of the idea is if you work harder, you'll make more. And that would never apply to me because I always worked as hard as I could. So um, someone said, well, I'll give you $50,000 bonus if you work even harder. It was like, ah, I got nothing left in the tank. Like I'm up at five, I give it my all, and, and no amount of money will make me work harder. I'm happy to take the money if I succeed, but it won't be because I said, geez, I'm going to do better because I can make more money. It was just because I, I was doing that. And so when we set up Lofilm, um, we actually started with bonuses until I realized no, and we got rid of them. And then what we went to was um, uh, profit sharing. So, uh, you know, we set targets and at the end of the year, there's a bunch of money that if we made it, uh, everybody got it uh, exactly proportional to their salary. So that means if you were, you know, highly paid, you got 10%. And if you were lowly paid, you got 10%, but everybody got a proportion of the benefit even poor performers, because everyone has poor performers. I mean, uh, you know, you try to hire as many perfect people as you can, but you know, you're going to hire, sometimes you just can't, you know, don't get lucky or whatever. And uh, our philosophy was everyone gets a bonus if they're employed with the company. <clears throat> and if you've got a problem with an employee, number one, you warn him, train him, try and get him to fix it. And if you can't, it's not that you take his bonus away, is you fire him. So the result was uh, at MoFilm, and anyone who worked with us kind of saw it, is that everybody ended up being super passionate and not, I'm going to say between quotes, caring about bonuses, um, knowing that we were all uh, working as a team. And that's the other thing. If there's no extra bonus for individual behavior, that promotes teamwork. So um, you know, I think the management of passion is a, is a huge subject, and I don't necessarily feel like it's been as reported as many of the other topics in business. It's actually very interesting. I mean, you're in the restaurant business now. It's a very interesting topic because it's kind of related to, you know, Europeans and in, in Europe and Asia, they don't typically tip 
and in America, it's very accepted, right? Uh, say a few words about that. How do you feel about this? Well, I mean, same philosophy probably won't surprise you after that intro that um, uh, when we started, and I knew nothing about running a restaurant. Um, I think you know some of that backstory. Oh, my God, I've been through a bit of hell and back. Um, you know, we did the usual. The waiters got tips, and if they sold more, they made more. And the staff in back slaving away over the hot stove got nothing. And, uh, you know, one day I had the same epiphany, like, this isn't right, because if the staff sends out a bad plate, the waiter's screwed, and if the staff sends out an amazing plate, the waiter's going to get an extra tip. And so we flipped everything over to tip sharing, where everybody in the exact same format as MoFilm got a bonus or, uh, or shared the tips exactly proportionate to their salary. So from our uh, uh, dishwasher all the way up to our very incredibly handsome waiter, you might recall, um, they all got the same percentage of tips. Now, that caused other problems. Uh, not surprising that the wait staff, uh, um, you know, a couple of them quit because they're like, oh, I want all the tips for me. Well, you know what? I didn't want that kind of person in Heroic anyway. So go work somewhere else. So let's, um, we're going to jump back and forth a little bit because, um, you know, first of all, for our audience, we will post a lot of information about Jeffrey and his um, adventures uh, on the landing page, so you'll know more about it, with links to the restaurant, with links to other, uh, you know, other projects that he's been involved with, like MoFil and so forth. But um, uh, let's talk about restaurant, right? So you're coming out of corporate, you're coming out of MoFil. It's very successful um, acquisition by uh, you and Jones and um, um, you and family Jones, right? Is that the name of uh, the, you and Mr. Jones? You and Mr. Jones. I apologize. And um, uh, you're entering the the restaurant business where you said you knew very little, but all that passion and the fact that you were you grew up around the kitchen you grew up cooking you grew up you know with a lot of different um you know a lot of different background related to this you decide now to open in an italian restaurant which is not typical i guess in santa monica right uh, is that is that a true is that a true statement no no there's there's a bunch there's a bunch uh, okay especially in brentwood there's a there's a italian row Right. Um, but being a marketer, you know, what is so different about heroic and what is, you know, what did you bring from the past into, you know, besides passion into this that made it so successful? So <clears throat> there are many things that I didn't know and screwed up. I got bad partners and uh, I didn't know how to do the operations. Uh, and, um, uh, but there are other things that helped me a lot. Like being able to cook uh, has been invaluable. Also being a foodie has been invaluable because I only let things come out of my kitchen that I want to eat. Um, and I have a website, as you know, Extreme Foodies. So people have come to me for food recommendations for years. So I think one of the things that I brought to this was I kind of know what people like to eat. Like if I taste something and I don't like it, I'm pretty sure my friend isn't going to like it either. And if I taste something that's delicious, I'm going to recommend it. And people normally find it you know, the recommendations uh, I make are, are good ones. So I think that's probably the biggest talent I brought into a business I did not know. Um, as to, you know, why Italian, uh, there are a lot of Italian restaurants. Uh, so it started with the sandwiches, and I've been a believer that um, sandwiches in America are generally actually pretty bad. Like, 
all that stuff you get in like Starbucks and like I don't know how people eat those things. You know, I agree. I agree. The bread with soggy mayonnaise. It's like what? You know, the lymph lettuce. It's like you know, I see people eating. I go, I almost want to cry out, "Don't do it!" Um, and uh, so we started with the uh, sandwich, the OMG sandwich, and there were you know two simple principles. One was I had to have the very best ingredients. So the best cold cuts are from Italy. Uh, they're better than Boar's Head. Nothing wrong with Boar's Head. They're better than Columbus. Nothing wrong with Columbus. But the Italian prosciutto from Tuscany and the mortadellas, they're just better. Simple as that. And then the other thing is bread. You don't have good bread, you don't have good sandwich. So I don't care. And I think most people would agree with that, even though they eat crappy bread. So we spent a huge amount of time getting a piece of bread with two simple characteristics. Crunchy on the outside and thin and cloud-like and airy on the inside. But I hate those dense pieces of bread where you got to pull the middle out of the bread. If you're pulling the middle out of your bread like at Subway, that's not a good piece of bread. So, um, you know, I think we, we achieved that and then we came up with other sandwiches. But the, you know, the first point was looking at an industry where I thought something was wrong and we could bring something to the party. We didn't set out to do the fancy side, uh, but we ended up inheriting a space, whether we should have done it or not, is a discussion for another day that had sort of another kitchen and then other side. And so we set up our secret garden and started doing the fine dining thing. And um, in a way, it's evolved into the exact same thing. Because I mentioned there are actually a lot of Italian restaurants, while not per se in Santa Monica over in Brentwood, which is, you know, two miles away, there must be 40 Italian restaurants. But they all have the same menu. And I mean, you know this also in New York, you'll find a lot of this, where you go into the Italian restaurant, you open it up, and every single item on that menu is familiar. You've had it a million times. Um, it's probably pretty damn good, by the way. So unlike the sandwiches, where there's millions of them and they're bad, I think with Italian food, there's millions of them, and they're not bad. Um, but we thought, well, let's try and apply the same idea of the sandwich to fine dining, and let's simply get better ingredients, both fresh, uh, imported, and live. So all our seafood comes from Santa Barbara, as much of it uh, live as possible. And um, let's come up with recipes that are unusual. Um, and we started unusual and we've gotten more unusual, like things that you just don't see on uh, menus anymore, like, um, uh, you know, vitello uh, tomato, but we've, you know, put our own spin to it. And uh, we've gone back and gotten recipes from cookbooks from Rome from 200 AD called Apicius or from the 1700s called um, Artuzzi, which is the name of our tuna sandwich. And we've tried to take those ancient recipes, add incredible ingredients, and freshen them up for a modern era. And that has proved, mm, it was slow to get off the ground, but it's now uh, taken hold. So, you know, uh, our audience is listening, and I'm, I'm hoping that they're beginning to realize that the, the, the true entrepreneurship is consisting of a lot of different, let's call them ingredients, right? And Jeffrey is now telling us more about this in terms of his insights. One, obviously, is you have to have passion. The other one is you have to have quality ingredients. And thirdly, is you have to... Uh, apply those ingredients and passion to make some really amazing products and nuances uh, playing, um, you know, a big role into this as well. Now let's I'd switch like back. I'd add the fourth piece about the team though. You said three, I'd add four. Okay. 
Okay. The, the, the part about the team and selecting good people and motivating them in the same way you get motivated. By the way, I give myself a bonus at the same ratio as anybody else uh, and trying to build that teamwork so that you're all working towards the same excellent goal uh, is, is vital. I mean, you can't do any of this alone. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Let's switch back now and talk a little bit about MoFilm, right? So you're at Accenture, you're um, working with a lot of amazing people in Accenture, working with a lot of amazing clients worldwide, uh, some of the top chief marketing officers. Um, tell me more, what sort of, um, you know, what prompted you to create something like this? So again, Accenture was exactly like the other places. I started in London and I was tasked with creating a marketing analytics division that didn't exist. So it was an entirely entrepreneurial task. And by the way, people don't know this about Accenture, very entrepreneurial company. So essentially you're on your own as a partner to create and sell stuff and you make partner if you can sell like, you know, 15, $20 million and kind of on your own and pull your own teams together. I mean, there's a whole podcast for someone to do about Accenture to reveal I mean, it's one of the most successful companies of all time. And I just don't think people from the outside understand how, and I didn't know when I joined it, how fundamentally un- entrepreneurial Accenture is. So it's absolutely astonishing. Um, I knew my task was entrepreneurial. And so when I came in, I was uh, uh, the first uh, employee. Uh, let me just tell a quick anecdote. I don't know how much time we had, but it just sort of summarized everything. We have as much time as you want, Jeffrey. Go ahead. Right, well, so here's a quick in it. Um, so I'm, I'm there sitting around in Accenture. And uh, the downside to be entrepreneurial is nobody comes over and says, can I help you? Like, if you reach out to them, say, can I get help? Like, yeah, I'll you. What do you need? But so I'm sitting there, and uh, nobody in Accenture knew anything about marketing. There wasn't even a word in Accenture. It was all CRM at the time. And I didn't know what CRM meant. So I'm sitting there at my desk in London. Uh, the phone's not ringing. Nobody's calling me to work on a project. So I start phoning around to all my old friends, and I got a tiny job with Mars. I got a you know, small job with a friend in uh, Campbellsville, Canada. Um, but this is all peanuts in the world of Accenture, you know, the million-dollar contracts, and then goofing around doing $60,000 analytics projects. And then uh, magically, my shared secretary walks in one day with this giant loaf of, of, of paper and drops it on my desk, and it's a RFP from Samsung Korea, you know, a request for proposal. And I'm staring at this thing going, wow, that's absolutely amazing. And it was like for almost a million dollars. Like my eyes nearly popped out of my head. And there was nobody else in Accenture that knew about marketing. So it just, and Accenture never got these things back then. So it was like a, a, a procurement mistake that Accenture is even on the list. But anyway, there it is, it landed on my desk. Um, and so I called my boss. And said, you know, I shared him the RP and uh, I had to go to Korea to present. And he goes, nah, that's crazy. Stay focused on, you know, Europe and US. You know, if you get unfocused, um, you're going you're gonna to fail. And so uh, I hung up sort of sad and uh, I left the RFP on my desk and my phone wouldn't ring and I sent some more emails. And, you know, then it started like glowing on the end of my desk and I said, oh, the hell with it. And so, um, you know, I wrote back to Samsung. I said, uh, I'll do it uh, even without permission from my boss. He didn't quite forbid me. He was sort of giving me advice, and that's typical of adventure. Um, when the reckoning comes, again, it's like we'll just 
ax you, but you know, it was not a sackable offense, but it was certainly when he found out his eyebrows were raised. Uh, so anyway, I jetted off to Korea. Obviously worked my heart out on the proposal because I had nothing else to do. Walked into a room with, uh, must have been 25 Korean men, all dressed in black suits, all named either Kim Lee or Park, and I am not exaggerating. I kept a stack of business cards. I made my presentation. One guy asked like two questions. The meeting ended and I walked out completely defeated. <laughs> that was the worst decision of my life. I probably will get sacked. And I told my brother, who lived in California, that I would fly from Korea to Hawaii. He would fly from California to Hawaii. And we'd play golf to celebrate my demise at Accenture. So I took off uh, in the afternoon from Seoul, Korea. And as you know, you go back through time zone. So I actually landed in Hawaii before I presented to Samsung. And the voicemail I got off the plane was we'd been hired. <laughs> wow. Uh, so uh, when I told my boss, he's like, you went? And they went, and you won? And uh, that was it. That was the beginning of uh, my career at Accenture. So I guess you don't, ask, uh, you don't ask permission, right? You ask forgiveness. I live by that. But you got to do it smart. I mean, you, know, you can't be rude. You have to have good manners. Of course. Uh, of course. But uh, yeah, I've broken more rules and glasses than you can than you could possibly count. But I also don't you know, have any belief in you know, real troublemakers and things like that. So that's a very fine line to walk when you're, um, when you're you know, stepping on toes. Uh, you need to do it with grace. And you know what? Um, every, uh, every time I talk to you and every time I, uh, I see you, I keep reminding myself that you actually do all of this yourself. You, you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, you go to the farmer's market, you select the ingredients, you select the, the veggies and the fruits and the, and the uh, produce and so forth. You, um, you know, I, there's something to be said about this in terms of delegation versus doing this yourself. You know, what can you say about that? Yeah, I want to be careful about that because like when I'm in the farmer's market, as soon as I turn that video off, I'm calling my, my team and asking, uh, what do we got today? What do we need? Um, and I'm absolutely involving in them. I'll, uh, you know, one of my guys will go, do they have spring chives? I never even heard of spring chives. And I'm the foodie. So I say, oh, I found some spring chives. I'll take a photo. Is this what you mean? You go, yeah, bring me three bunch of those. And then we'll collaborate on, I mean, I probably come up with every single dish concept, but then how we bring it to life is a team effort. It's a team effort on what ingredients should we add or subtract? Uh, what uh, different cooking techniques might we add or subtract to make it different and better because we don't want to make the same dish as everyone else. So steak also buco, very difficult dish to make well. Um, and we made it and it came out like everybody else's also buco that does it okay. And I was unhappy with it. And then, you know, we added white, fresh cannelloni beans to it. It like transformed the dish. It like made it a thousand times better. And uh, that wasn't my idea. So um, I think the team thing, I'm going to keep coming back to it. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a hands-on person, and that is also leading by example. But you can't do everything yourself. And including the team and motivating your team um, is absolutely crucial. But it's important to set the tone. It's important to yes. be that conductor, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I tot I'm totally with you in terms of teamwork, in terms of leveraging the team and getting the best of the team to have the team perform the best as well. Um, yeah. 
you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, you do as well, you've done this in your career. Um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made, some of the biggest mistakes you see around you with entrepreneurs that you um, would love, to, you know, people not to repeat, I guess. Um, I guess, what are some of the mistakes that you've made uh, that you would love to um, not have made? I always thought I was a good people person. <clears throat> and then I convinced myself I was a good business person. And then I convinced myself I was good at interviewing people. And over the years, I learned first that I'm crap at interviewing people. Uh, and then I kind of came to the conclusion that none of us, well, I'll put it differently. I think interviewing people is really, really, really hard. And the reason... I agree. <laughs> ...is because... Um, there are some characteristics, like let's say you find someone who's incredibly charismatic, but super lazy. Just take those two characteristics as a given for my example. Well, in the interview, that person's going to blow you away because they're super charismatic. And no matter what subject you talk about, they'll put the best spin on it and tell anecdotes and you know, they'll even say, oh, yeah, I made these mistakes, and blah, 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 blah. And you go, I'm hiring this person. And then you hire them, and they're still super charismatic. But they're butt lazy. They don't get their work done. They, they, they're always sick. They never come in. It's always something. And their excuses are better than anyone's. Like, laziness is a very, very hard, if not impossible, thing to interview for. And uh, I stumbled across this. Someone did it to me. Uh, profiling, you know, all this stuff like Myers-Briggs and stuff like that. And at first, man, I hated that. It felt like an affront to my amazing people skills. And sort of over time, I've grudgingly, defeatedly accepted that those programs are worthy. Uh, and that, um, and I've actually profiled key positions ever, ever since for years and years at Accenture Everybody, nobody entered MoFilm without a profile. Wouldn't do it in the restaurant industry, but um, for it's not the same type of task. But uh, but I think that's a big deal. One final question, Jeffrey, and um, you know, we, I, I love speaking with you. I love learning from you. Let's talk a little bit about your personal side, uh, the family. Your global travelers, your entrepreneurship, your, you know, it must be very hard in the family. So how do you manage, how do you balance this? You know, you have a, you have a wonderful family, kids. How do you balance all of this together? Well, so the first thing is, you know, when people ask how many kids you have, I go three. Okay, how old are they? And I go, well, they're 40, they're 30, and they're 10. And you can tell everyone's going, oh, you remarried, without saying it. And of course, the punchline is no. Uh, you know, they're like trophy wife. I'm like, yes, same trophy wife. So, um, you know, we've been married a long time. And then as to travel, um, I mean, I've taken them everywhere. And uh, if anything, everybody in my family is miserable because none of us can go anywhere. And the second this curse gets lifted off of all of us, I mean, I don't know where we're going, but we're going somewhere and we're going in a hurry. Because we've, um, I, I uh, always took, certainly my wife and often my kids, with us. I mean, Accenture was a very generous company, so, uh, you know, <laughs> I was fortunate to be able to do that. Um, uh, number one, you know, not everyone can afford it, but at Accenture, I could afford it, and I'm very grateful. My, both my wife and kids have seen the world, and we've done it together, and 
those are irreplaceable memories. But yeah, I mean, I get that balance when you really got to travel without your family relentlessly. Um, I mean, I love to travel. So I guess I probably don't feel that bad. <laughs> One very important question, and I know we want to get to it. it. It's always been asked this entire pandemic, this entire coronavirus, right? From the standpoint of um, the, uh, how we're executing on this in the, in, the, in the United States, how we're executing on this vis-a-vis small, medium-sized business, and also what can you say about how we're doing this in comparison to everybody else in the world, you know, other, other countries, for example? So you got to start by saying that, you know, nobody saw this coming. I know some people want to blame the Chinese, but I mean, you know, I mean, this could have come from anywhere. Um, uh, I, I honestly don't think it's anybody's fault. Um, you know, could, and, and could people have done things better? Well, yeah, like everyone, <laughs> like including China and America and Italy. And so while it's very easy to point fingers and complain, and I certainly do it all the time, I think the backdrop has to be, you know, the world has just confronted something that none of us have ever, ever seen before, except in some crazy movie. And you probably didn't like the movie because that'll never happen. Uh, so now, once you accept that and then look at where we are now, you know, I mean, because no one has any experience, I think we're making lots and lots of mistakes. So I'm going to jump straight to some of the prescriptions that I've been advocating for. I don't think it makes any sense that you can walk into Walmart, cough all over the broccoli, and, you know, fondle all the children's toys and, you know, go back and forth down the alleys and then pay and then walk out. But the toy store next door is closed. Like, um... I think both those policies are a good example of being wrong. I think that the super centers should be uh, curbside. You know, most of them have that technology anyway. Um, <clears throat> there's no reason for people to be going in and coughing all over the broccoli. Just order it and pick it up uh, there. And then the closed toy store, I mean, if he wants to sell a puzzle or a book and deliver it curbside, why can't he? So I think that's a good example where we've made a massive concession, which is killing people to super centers, and we've unnecessarily destroyed the livelihood of hardworking small families with bookstores, toy stores, and, and things of the like. I think that the right policy that should be implemented today immediately is what kind of the restaurant policy is, is everyone should be curbside until someone figures out a better way. You know, simple as that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We have another guest. Uh, we have a COVID convo with Dr. Wendy Tong, my, uh, my good friend and another guest who's a physician. And she has a very interesting uh, elderly care business as well. And she's from Hong Kong. And, you know, we just did a, a podcast uh, recording the tale of two cities, right? We have four people, four deaths in Hong Kong, the city of 8 million, the city state of 8 million. And we have 20,000 in New York City alone. Right. Yeah. How how is that possible? I mean, how there must be something that, you know, folks in Hong Kong are doing that is better or or more prudent or whatever. And and they're opening everything right now. You know, they're they're you know, they're doing this in the orderly fashion. Everybody's wearing a mask and so forth. So is this a matter of discipline? Is this a matter of genetics? You know, what do you think it is? I think it's all of the above. Um, you know, the Asians are legendary in many cultures for wearing masks anyway, uh, and bowing instead of shaking hands. And, um, I mean, I don't pretend to 
know even a fraction of what you would need to know to explain some of these extraordinary differences between countries. I mean, um, countries in Latin America that have no cases and then countries in like Brazil that have gone nuts. You know, there's this theory that, well, the sun and heat uh, kills corona, but, you know, hot countries have gotten hit and cold countries have gotten spared. So I think, um, I think uh, you know, even in New York, I think not only is it different by country, it appears to be different by state and it, it appears to be different by county. Obviously, the, the worst you can hope for is a dense population like Manhattan, but you're right. I mean, Hong Kong's dense. <laughs> Very dense. Than that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't really. I. I don't feel like I can explain that. But I do think that um, what we should do is stop swinging back and forth between the extremes, and simply go to what I like to call, for now, safe society, safe commerce. Uh, everyone should, you know, wear masks, whether you want to or not, because it's a courtesy to others. Um, you know, we should practice curbside as long as we think we should practice curbside probably start to let the kids go back to school as the youth seem to be able to escape uh, uh, sooner than, than the elderly. And um, because that's the other thing is the economy is killing people too. So, you know, we've got 70,000 deaths in the U.S. Uh, we had 48,000, call it 50,000 suicides last year. Uh, I'll bet we'll end up with 100,000 suicides this year because suicide is mostly driven by economics. It is true. It is true. We should consider that... Um, you know, opening the economy balanced against more people dying uh, is, is an important trade-off. And I think that safe opening and safe commerce, not like those idiots protesting in mobs without masks. They're fools and idiots. But safe commerce, safe education, um, we need to do it because uh, a meltdown economy will kill people too. Jeffrey, it's been an amazing conversation. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I am. I can't wait to fly over to Santa Monica and visit again <laughs> with uh, with Heroic. And uh, love you, man. And uh, great to see you. And and great to talk to you. Well, as a guy who apparently is recovered from Corona, I got to say, Alex, you look absolutely radiant. So well done. You're an inspiration to all of us who are trying to either avoid or get over this damn thing. Thank you very much. Bye. Take care. Take care.